Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. Welcome to the Intersections podcast, where we discuss news from around the world and its implications for human rights. Before we start, I wanted to say a big thank you and farewell to both Catherine Zhu, our research intern and podcast co-host, who is going back to school this week, and Laurel Vibitzan, our producer, who is headed off to new opportunities at the end of this month. Thank you both so much. We will be taking a short break after this episode and returning in mid-September with a new team and some new episodes. Let's now dive into our news segment. Catherine, what do you have for us today? To start us off, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, was in Bangladesh last week, the first visit by someone in her job since it was established in 1993. She was there in part to examine the situation of Rohingya refugees from Myanmar. Bangladesh has the largest refugee camp in the world, housing over 900,000 refugees in Cox's Bazar. The government of Bangladesh was hoping to use Bachelet's visit to talk about the repatriation of Rohingya refugees. But Bachelet, in her remarks, made clear that conditions were not right for their return. She also raised issues in closing civic space, the protection of women and minority rights, and online hate speech. Bachelet also raised the issue of enforced disappearances and extrajudicial killings, among other alleged abuses by state agencies and paramilitary groups like the Rapid Action Battalion. The Asian Human Rights Commission, a Hong Kong-based NGO, estimates that at least 619 people were forcibly disappeared between 2009 and June 2022. And Catherine, why now for this visit to Bangladesh? So the timing for this visit can be explained partly by the fact that Bachelet's term is ending later this month and partly by the impending five-year anniversary of the start of the Rohingya refugee crisis. It's also worth noting that August 30th is the International Day of the Victims of Enforced Disappearances, which acknowledges the people who have been unjustly detained or disappeared by governments. State agents typically deny any knowledge of the fate or whereabouts of forcibly disappeared people, making it a particularly tragic form of abuse, as their loved ones have no idea where they are and whether they are still alive. The UN Committee on Enforced Disappearances has recorded over 59,000 cases of enforced disappearances in 110 countries since 1980, including 651 new cases from 30 countries in its 2021 annual report. 
Wow. It's incredible how widespread this phenomenon is, and yet it really flies below the radar a lot of the time. For listeners who are interested in learning more about the phenomenon of enforced disappearances, we actually have a new white paper we just released on this topic by our CSIS Human Rights Initiative Senior Associate Diane Weber and our former research intern Khala Sharani, um, which talks about some of the gaps in the international legal regime around accountability for those that carry out enforced disappearances. So we'll put that white paper in the resources for today's podcast and also uh, on our CSIS Human Rights Initiative homepage. Catherine, what's our next story? We also wanted to acknowledge on this episode that August 15th was the one-year anniversary of the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. There's been a lot of powerful coverage of the rollbacks of human rights, in particular women's rights, that's taken place over the last year, but it's worth highlighting a few key points. Since last August, Taliban has reimposed most of the restrictions it had in place on women in the 1990s, including requiring a head-to-toe covering in public, banning women from stepping outside even for medical appointments without their male relatives, forbidding women from holding many jobs, and preventing girls above sixth grade from going to school. Yeah, it's really been heartbreaking to watch the progression over the last year of this deterioration of the situation for women. I wrote a piece with my colleague Lauren Burke this week in which we compared these restrictions that we see right now in Afghanistan to those that the Taliban put in place in the 1990s. And we found a pretty remarkably similar pattern, both in their rhetoric and in their behavior that suggests to me that we should not be holding our breath and thinking that the Taliban is going to fundamentally change its approach to governance at any point. And I I hope that after a year of of watching the situation and waiting for some kind of shift that the international community refocuses on limiting the Taliban's ability to infringe on human rights and, and really increasing their support for civil society activists who are trying to defend human rights. Absolutely. And next on our list is the Biden administration's new Africa strategy, which was launched during Secretary of State Blinken's trip to South Africa, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Rwanda earlier this month. The strategy laid out a revamped vision for America's engagement with African countries, with a greater emphasis on partnership on cross-cutting challenges like climate adaptation and post-pandemic economic recovery, as well as work on fostering open societies and delivering democratic and security dividends. After launching the strategy in South Africa, Secretary Blinken traveled to DRC and Rwanda where he tackled several of these issues. A particular focus was the resurgent conflict between Rwanda and DRC over allegations that Rwanda is funding the insurgent group M23, which is driving violence in eastern Congo. An August 4th UN expert report found those allegations credible and even presented evidence that Rwanda is maintaining its own troops in DRC, which the country, of course, denies. Yeah, so obviously we'll watch closely how the administration decides to implement this new strategy and frame its human rights conversations, especially in the context of what we often talk about on this podcast, which is what's happening with human rights here in the United States and the implications that that has for our credibility on the continent. I'm looking forward to talking about this topic with today's guests, including Secretary Blinken's visit to Rwanda and how he framed that conversation. But before we do that, let's talk about our final story. The last thing we're discussing today are the outcomes from the recent presidential elections in Kenya. Deputy President William Ruto was finally declared the winner after six days of vote counting in an incredibly tight race against opposition leader Raila Odinga, for whom this is the fifth bid for the presidency. 
The election results are now headed to court, however, after four of seven electoral commissioners refused to certify the results, and Odinga and his party rejected the outcome. All parties, however, have been calling for calm and patience while the process plays out, as we hope to avoid a repeat of the post-electoral violence, which we saw in 2007 and 8. Yeah, Kenyan elections are always a roller coaster, and there are always some interesting lessons we can potentially learn, uh, especially if the court does uphold this result. I think the level of transparency undertaken by the in the polling process that was required as a result of the Kenyan Supreme Court decision after the 2017 election is, is probably what will ultimately determine whether those results do stand. So let's discuss this and more with today's guest. Mavemba Dizulele is a senior fellow and director of the Africa program here at CSIS and previously worked as the Africa senior advisor at the International Republican Institute. He also just returned from serving as an election observer in Kenya. Welcome, Mavemba. Thank you for having me, Marty. So tell us, first of all, about your experience in Kenya. Where were you posted and what did you observe? My colleague and I were posted in uh, Kiambu County, just so about 30 minutes uh, outside Nairobi with the new the super freeway, they call it. It was calm, a lot of excitement. I think this is uh, the time that the uh, Kenyans were hoping to elect uh, the fifth president, which is pretty cool. And considering that the democratic gains have taken hold, I think in Kenya there is no going back, at least as we see in the f- uh, foreseeable future. Uh, the population we interacted with were very excited about the uh, the elections. There was always a foreboding or kind of uh, the elephant in the room, so to speak, about violence. The Post-elect- shadow of the 2007, shadow of 2008. Yeah. yeah. But that was always front and center. People were very mindful of that. We didn't see anybody pushing for violence. We also thought the process, as we engaged with the uh, various voters, they had a lot of confidence in the process. Well, that's good to hear. I know that turnout was a little bit lower than expected. Was that true in your area as well? I think so, but it's always hard to say. You know, you have the numbers that you read in the press, and then there's what you see when you're on the ground. The opening experience, you know, you wake up at 4 a.m., you have to be there by 5, so you can see the center opening and all that stuff. It was packed. You know, in the area where we were, you know, there was a problem with electricity. People had their own light and so, but they were there standing. We arrived there around um, five-ish or so, 4.45. People were in line standing. Yeah, so the excitement was in the air. Yeah. So here we are now, post-election, once again in a dispute, right? We have uh, a clear winner declared by the election commission, but Rilo Dinga has lost the election once again and is challenging the results once again. So in some ways it feels like deja vu. We've seen this election before. We've seen these players before. But is this one different? I mean, you talked about, you know, there's no going back on democracy and that this isn't 2007, 2008. Do you see the potential for unrest or do you think this is going to get resolved in the courts? I think the courts will resolve this. I think Kenyans, Kenyans do not want to have the shadow of a country that goes to violence after election. We knew, I mean, from all the briefings that we got from Kenyan analysts, they all kind of had a sense that this will end up in court, uh, mostly because it was very tight. And the only way to sort it out is go talk to the magistrate. On the other side, nobody wants to go to the ICC. 
Yes. <laughs> that was a big problem for mm-hmm. Kenya, having a president and his deputy, you know, being indicted and all this stuff. So Kenya, they're proud people. They don't want to go through this again. The other thing, though, is, you know, it was very tight. All the polls show that it was very tight. So in many ways, it was a toss-up. It could have been Raila, it could have been, I mean, that's what any election does, but in this case, it was very any tight. Any good election, right? <laughs> yeah, you you good don't want to know the outcome exactly. beforehand. So in that sense, it's not surprising that one of them won. Now, the question is what twists will happen with the court that we don't know. Uh, but otherwise, I think they, they, will have, they have a president who will sit. Yeah, it's it's been amazing to see as fraught as Kenyan elections always feel like they are. And as much as everybody looks back to 2007, over the 14 years since then, it does feel like a real evolution in terms of just the reliance on the court system and the institutions that have evolved to adjudicate these disputes peacefully, right? In 2017, they reran the entire election after the court threw out the results. Are there lessons that you see to be learned here for other countries in Africa or other countries in general facing the potential for disputed elections? Well, I think... Confidence in court is key. I mean, this is part of rule of law. You know, when we talk about the rule of law, it's always, sometimes it sounds so abstract. But I think in the case of Kenya, the case in, at hand here, we know that the courts will do have that. They've proven in the past that they're just not going to be bullied into any kind of result. But also, it's been interesting for Kenya because when you talk to analysts and the people in the street, it was not clear what, who was in the opposition, who was in the majority. Remember, President Uhuru Kenyatta and Adipu William Ruto were in the same government. And President Uhuru Kenyatta was supporting somebody who was outside the government. But the other person who was running was in the government. So who's, who is the opposition? That was already, I think that also tempered a lot of those feelings that you are referring to. Like, we're not sure really who's out, who's The institutional candidate, (laughs) who's the outside candidate. So that that played a major role. But in terms of lessons, I was very impressed. I mean, I've observed elections in a few countries. Personally, I was impressed how smoothly technology worked. Yeah, there are these machines that they call Kim's machines, where people come, they take the fingerprints and all that stuff. And everywhere we went, whether in Juja, Kiambu, Kiamba, we didn't see the machine fail. I'm sure it fell a couple instances here and there, but we didn't see it. And where there were problems, those problems were because the machine couldn't read the fingerprint. And when that happened, they had a contingency procedure in place. And that I thought was fantastic. I've been in other countries where they tried to introduce technology. It's a and it didn't work as well. <laughs> it didn't work yeah. as well. You know, it becomes problematic where should we go back to marbles or should we go back to our regular paper? You know? <laughs> and that's surely but, a um, lesson Kenya learned from 2017 as well, right? When the electronic system uh, didn't work as well, right? And it caused a big question about the outcomes. So I'm curious about, you were out there obviously in, with an NGO, but what the role the U.S. has been playing in the electoral process in Kenya and, you know, in light of the strategy that the U.S. just announced a week or so ago, do you think there's going to be any shifts in terms of how they're thinking about this election or elections in general? I think the lesson to be learned for everyone, right? For observers, for the Kenyans themselves, for donors, countries like the U.S. I think the U.S. has been engaged. The very fact that uh, you had a joint NDI-IRI, the National Democratic Institute and International Public Institute there, jointly there, President Chisano led that, um, that delegation. I spoke with some U.S. diplomats. They were excited about this, and they were willing to support the Kenyan people going forward. 
So the success of the election is everybody's success. Do you think the U.S. was effective in being neutral in not showing favoritism towards one candidate or the other? Sometimes, uh, especially in Kenya, there's a perception maybe that the U.S. is on one side or the other. I think when it comes to the main candidates, you know, D.P. Ruto and uh, Mr. Odinga, I think the U.S. walked that fine line. I don't think there was any... If you talk to NGOs and human rights organizations, there are different feelings about these things. But I think the U.S. government did what he had to do, and they did it well. Yeah. So that's a good opportunity to take a step back and talk about the Africa strategy more broadly. So I thought in the strategy, there was a strong emphasis on democratic and security dividends. There's always something in the Africa strategy about governance and democracy, right? But this really framed it in the context of dividends on democracy. And it really made it much more concrete rather than abstract in terms of what's the value of democracy. And it aligned really well with, I think, the Biden administration's kind of framing of how does democracy deliver for its people, right? That's the argument they're making. But what do you think that means for the State Department or the U.S. government's engagement in Africa on elections issues, on democracy and governance issues? Is that really a shift from what they're doing day to day? Or what would you like to see them do to kind of implement that new strategy in terms of democracy delivering? Yeah, I think in terms of democracy delivering, this is important. But then, like you said, it's been there. We've been talking about democracy in Africa for a long time. I think the challenge now is really for the U.S. to put its money where they're putting the statesmen. Also, how are they going to even this? In other words, Africa is a big continent, 53, 54 countries. If you are supporting a strong man, you're winking at a strong man in Chad because of stability. This is always the, the graveyard, right? It's a stability thing. Oh, no, uh, they, they can wait for the democracy in Chad. Well, the moment you do that, what does that mean for Zambia? or Malawi that have done so well in that space, who deserve actually to be supported more? Or what does it mean for Zimbabwe? So that's, I think that nuance there, or sometimes it's not quite nuance, it's very brusque and, uh, and sudden, where it's like, oh, there was a queen chart, but we're going to support the guy. But there was a queen, Mali, we don't want you guys, we're going to sanction you. It's how we deal with these contradictions. We cannot have, well, can we have a one size fits all? Maybe, but the stands should be the same across the board. The principle should be the same. If the military junta or posse or transitional government takes over in charge, we should be able to condemn them. We should not be say, it's okay over here in the name of stability. And then the guys, well, there's stability probably in Zimbabwe too. If you ask them, they would say, we cannot move too fast because it's going to fall apart. And to your point, resources are limited. And sometimes it feels like there's a lot of attention paid to those those countries because of their instability or because of the need for stability in those places to prop up that dictator, that strongman, also comes with a lot of resource implications and a lot of security funding that could go elsewhere. Yeah. And also to that point, also, there's something that I think is unique in this uh, strategy document is African agency. You know, it's the first time we're seeing this mentioned in, uh, in a U.S.-Africa strategy document. And that African agency should not be the agency of the government. So I suppose, as an extension to your question, is actually the agency of the people. And the agency of the people, you and I know, have been worked there, having worked there, that is to have democracy, to have representative government, and that you get through elections. So the U.S. has its work cut out for it. We'll be seeing how it evolves. And how is the U.S. doing in that broader engagement with civil society, with the actors that 
you know, are, are working towards democracy. Do you see progress in terms of the stakeholder engagement, support to civil society? Is that something that's going to be addressed through this strategy? I think the strategy makes it very clear that they will be engaging in that space. Now, making it clear in the strategy is one thing. My colleague, um, Catherine Zuki and I just wrote a reaction to the strategy. And one issue that we, we raised and f- or flagged is the agency. How do we engage with civil society in the way that this agency actually makes sense? And your question is, are we engaged? Is the U.S. engaging more? I think the U.S. can do more. You talked about resources earlier. Resources are limited. But it's not just about resources. It's about making that statement. It's about standing with civil society when they get in trouble. It's not about the check. People have been uh, delivering with on tight budgets, really, a lot of these CSOs. And they do a lot of work with the $10, with the $25. But do we stand with them when the repressive regime comes after them? Do we talk, the diplomatic talk, the diplomatic speak on one hand? On the other hand, we urge both sides to refrain from violence, you know, that kind of stuff. And that will, will be the proof. So that brings us very nicely to Secretary Blinken's trip, right? So at the same time he's announcing this strategy, laying it out in South Africa, he then goes to DRC and Rwanda, right, where he says he's going to raise the issue of Paul Begina, who's been detained by the Rwandan government, but puts out a press statement really focused on the U.S.-Rwanda strategic partnership. So to your point earlier about choosing stability over human rights and democracy, it felt to me like right away your actions are in conflict with your words, right? How do you assess that visit? Was that a strategic decision to try and tamp down the conflict between Rwanda and DRC and try and prevent that from turning into a wider uh, violence? Or was that just the same old sort of, we engage with Rwanda because they are an island of stability and economic opportunity? I think it was in many ways disappointing. On one level, we're glad that the secretary went there. Every time that uh, a high-level official, such as Secretary of State, visit the region, we applaud that. The challenge when you evaluate diplomats, they always stuff they say they said behind closed doors, which we're not privy to, so we don't know if they were actually said or not said. But my point is, this thing should be said in the open. If it's about peace, then let's talk about that peace. And what does it entail? What does the U.S. want to do? If it's about the you know, liberation of Rusesa Megadina, it's interesting because the Rwandan government was very clear on their position. You know, we saw that Senator Menendez issued a letter a while back demanding XR. We didn't see echo. We didn't hear echoes of those in the, the statement from uh, Secretary Blinken. So that's a bit disappointing to us. But Rwanda was very clear that they're in their rights, they're going to prosecute him, they're going to keep him right there. We didn't see the pushback from the U.S. Uh, in terms of peace and DRC, I thought he was also very generic statement. We urge both sides. That conflict will not end until somebody comes in there, bring these people to the table and say, what exactly is your malfunction? <laughs> you know, let's fix it. And that also didn't come true. Are you seeing the kind of engagement from this administration on those Africa conflict or potential conflict issues that you want to, whether that's DRC, Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan? How is the administration doing in terms of doing that work, as you said, to kind of work with both sides on on actually resolving issues? 
It's mitigated, right? So we just saw that Ambassador Mike Hammer, who was in DRC, has been appointed as a special envoy for the Horn. That's a good thing. But we have other positions that remain vacant. We have the special envoy for the Sahel, that is not there. We have ambassadorial posts that are still vacant. This is not just in Africa, but Africa needs those posts to be filled. We have embassies that are chronically underfunded. How then does the strategy get implemented when you have all these pieces that are not in place? Uh, who carries out the strategy? Yeah, in the end, the strategy is implemented by people and by dollars. Right? Exactly. If you don't have the money and the personnel, then... And it's a nice piece of literature. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So last question for you is just taking a step back and thinking about sort of our engagement in Africa over the last five years or so, there's been a lot of talk about Africa feeling singled out on human rights issues, right? That we call out democracy and governance issues in Africa where maybe we don't in in Southeast Asia or in other parts of the world. And also these kind of concerns that we're calling them out when we have our own problems here in the U.S., right? We have plenty of human rights and democracy issues that we're facing that are coming to the fore. At the same time, at least when I talk to a lot of Africans, especially in civil society, they still want to see the U.S. raise these issues and put them front and center. They don't mind the hypocrisy or the they don't mind the duality of this challenge the U.S. is mm -hmm. facing as long as we do it sort of with a bit of modesty. Would you Do you get that sense from the folks that you're talking to that they still desire to have the U.S. pushing for these issues? And how is the Biden administration doing on that? Are we representing those values when we're engaging in Africa? I think people, of course, the two sides to it. If you're government, you say you've been singled out, right? <laughs> because those are the repressive systems that are carrying out these uh, this, this abuses. They will always have a different narrative. If you are civil society or the population, of course, you want people to speak out. I think we saw this with the summit of the Americas. There is a problem there because the U.S. excluded certain people from attending. As we prepare for the Africa Leadership Summit... I'm of the view that everybody should be invited. I don't care if you're Eritrea or if you're Zimbabwe, everybody should be invited. And the reason being, if we consider this as some sort of intervention, <laughs> you know, and you want to talk to people about what is going wrong, well, let's have them in the room. It didn't go well when we excluded people at the Summit of the Americas. The U.S. has the bully pulpit. The U.S. want to bring them, talk about Let's talk about Let's talk about it with them. Uh, they may not agree, but they will hear it directly. And then also support civil society and groups that are working in that space on the ground, continue to raise the issue because the issue is important. The issue is actually a matter of national security uh, for us and for those countries. So why shy away from them? Is the uh, uh, Biden administration doing enough? It's hard to say. The Biden administration has not been really front and center on Africa. You get a sense that it's not a priority. Even that uh, the strategy came out now, it's midway through the term of the president. We're glad it came out. It's obvious that they worked hard uh, to get it out. Uh, the fact that the summit has been announced is good, but the summit has been denounced, announced for December. Which, which African want to come to Washington in December? I'm not sure. You know, That's but, the punishment for the, for the Eritreans and the Zimbabweans. But, but we're glad it's been announced. Now the yeah. question is, what do we put on that agenda come December? So, well, actually, what was your sense over the Summit of Democracy? Did it do what it was supposed to do in this space of human rights and 
so there was the same, you know, critique about the summit in terms of participation, in terms of who who got invited and who didn't. And I think they they walked the line on that fairly well. There were probably some countries that should have been there that weren't and some that clearly needed to be excluded. But I think the value of these summits is agenda setting, right? It's as you said, it's showing priorities and it's setting out kind of a framework for engagement. It's it's an opportunity to kind of lay out the foundation of a new of a new relationship and the principles and then there's always the deliverables right there's always mm-hmm. the money that comes out of it and where the summit for democracy fell short the first time is while it got everyone in the room to have the conversations the follow-up wasn't there from the other participants to say here's what we're going to do about it and the U.S. hasn't been able to follow up on its commitments either because of our own domestic politics so I'll be interested to hear from you what you want to see coming out of that Africa summit concretely is it more than just showing Africans that we care about the continent? Are there specific things that you think should be launched or come out of there that will have an impact? We're actually thinking about that. We've not come out with uh, come up with a list, but this is something that we have some recommendations for for our friends at the White House. Well, we'll be sure to have you back <laughs> on to talk about that when yes, it gets we'll, closer to we'll December. We'll put something together. <laughs> Great. Well, Mavemba, thanks so much for being here with us. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you for having me, Martin. Pleasure. More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.